Well, we finished our morning series on Ruth last week, and until September 11th, we're going to have some one-off sermons until we start our new series called The Mission of God. If you've been with us on Sunday nights at all recently, uh, one of the things that we've been focusing on is that that there's a premise in the Bible. And the premise, one of the major premises is that there's a difference in supernatural change and natural change. Natural change, natural change, as the Old Testament put it, is girding up your loins. It's picking yourself up by your bootstraps. It's it's trying to become a better. It's trying to become a better person, becoming you know Corey 3.0, uh, getting up every day and trying to be your better self. But the the logic of the scriptures is that there's an entire entirely different way to change, a supernatural change, and the change that we looked at, we've been looking at on on Sunday nights in John is the same thing that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter five. It's it's a change that can only come about by the Holy Spirit. And the, there's an underlying premise to that, and it's something that we believe at St. Columbus, that, that salvation is not just saying yes. It's not just saying yes to the claims of the gospel, but, but that the gospel actually changes everything. It changes, it changes things all the way down. It, the gospel reconciles people to God. It reconciles people to people, neighbor to neighbor. It reconciles people to the material world, to the, to the universe, to food. But one of the first places that the gospel does the work of reconciliation, one of the first places that it changes people is inside of them. It, it changes who you are. It changes who you are. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, the, the famous Scottish novelist, um, wrote The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a book that probably most of you have interacted with at some point. And it's no surprise that uh, Stevenson was raised in a Scottish Presbyterian home, if you read that book. Because the entire book is expressing Stevens' view that, that people are basically split into two, into, into good and into evil, right? Um, so, you know, Dr. Jekyll makes a serum, and the serum he thinks is going to make him into a better person. That's what he's trying to do. But what the serum actually does is it reveals his true self, or part of his true self, right? It, it turns him into Mr. Hyde. And at one point in the book, when he's reflecting on what the serum does to him, it turns him into Hyde, this monster... Uh, he says, with every day and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, I drew steadily nearer to the truth by whose partial discovery I'd been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck that man is not truly one, but truly two. The, the Bible puts it better. Than, the Bible says that, there, that we are at war with ourselves, that, that, there's, that sin creates a war between your mind and your heart. A duality. A duality in your very person. Sin, sin is the power that comes in and rips you apart. It sets your mind against your heart and against your desires. Look, you know this because have you, ever, have you ever known what was right in a particular situation? What choice you needed to make? The, ethic, the ethical choice you needed to make, the moral decision. And you knew, you knew in your head exactly what it was, but, but you decided to go the other way. Right? And why? You didn't care. In the moment, you just didn't care because your desires overwhelmed what you knew. Your head was at war with your heart. Uh, your heart doesn't believe what your head tells you. You see, yourself is at war with yourself. And this, it's, not, it's not just in mere ethics, but this also happens to us in terms of happiness. It happens to us in terms of happiness. So, you know, you, could, you can have the greatest week of your life. All your circumstances are in place. You know, you, you come to Fridays. You know, how 
you have a good Friday afternoon, Friday evening when you've had a great work week and you know you've accomplished all the tasks you need to accomplish and you've prayed your prayers and you've read your Bible and, and your wife's not mad and your husband's not mad and your kids are not crying at night. You're, you're a student and you finally found that girl, that guy. And your romance is on cloud nine. But look, there's, there's still a part of you that's just not satisfied. You know, you're just not, you're just not, you, you know everything's good, but you're not completely content. There's, there's a something, there's a something going on in your head. You know, St. Augustine, one of the um, early church fathers, put it this way, our hearts are constantly restless. Our hearts are constantly restless. There's a, some, there's a something, there's a something. What? The answers in this passage, that something Paul's telling us is that we need supernatural change due to a supernatural presence. And so the question is, how do you know if you've experienced supernatural change? How, how do you know if you how do you know if the Holy Spirit's how do you know if the change you're experiencing is, is change wrought by the Holy Spirit? How do you know? And that's what Paul's addressing in this passage. Paul, Paul, Paul is telling you here that you can know the answer to that question by asking another question. And the question is, what do you hope in? What, what do you hope in? Hope is the subjective disposition of the heart. It's a state of being. It's a standing in something that reflects true change. And so there's two things that we need to figure out about this hope. First, the definition of hope. What's the definition of hope? And then secondly, the freedom of hope. How is hope freeing? So first, the definition of hope. If you look down at verse 1, hope has a context. And the context of hope for Paul is the word therefore. You see the very first word, therefore. And the therefore is there because it's pointing to the logic of the first four chapters of the book of Romans. Every, he's been making an argument and he's been... The word, therefore, is pointing to his entire argument that he's made from chapters 1 to 4. And the culmination of that argument is in that one little phrase right after the therefore. Since we have been justified by faith. Since we have been justified by faith. Justification by faith. That's what Paul's talking about up to this point in the book of Romans. And, you know, to, to get justification by faith, to get what he's talking about, you have to lift yourself up to the judgment seat of God. You, know, you have to leave your body. You have to, you have to leave, your mind has to go up and think about the judgment seat of God for a moment. You know, there's, a, there's a temptation for us to think about Christian salvation in the way, of, uh, in the way that other religions think about Christian salvation. You, know, you, you compare yourself to others. You get your standard of good from, from looking around you. You get your standard of good from how, how well you obey the religious practices. Right? So in, in Buddhism, for example... Uh, you subscribe to a particular program, and then at the end of your life, you hope beyond hope that that program has been enough to get you into the next life, to get you better, a better life uh, in the future. But the Christian, what Paul's talking about here, is completely different from that. Uh, totally different from that. What he's saying is that you have to raise yourself up to the judgment seat of God. You have to stand face to face before the judgment seat of God. And when that happens, what happens is that all conceit... All pride, all capability completely melts away like wax. 
it, it falls apart. You know, we read it in our first scripture reading, Romans 3. No one is righteous. That's Paul's way of saying it from Isaiah 52. No one is righteous. No, not one. You fall apart, complete light wax before, before the face of God. And what, what's justification? Justification is these two little beautiful words. Even so. Even so. Even, you, you fall completely, but even so. It's God's pronouncement. It's God's pronouncement that, that all the death you deserved, Jesus got. And all the life that you're getting, Jesus bought for you. It's, that's God's pronouncement. What Paul is doing here, what Paul is doing here is he's setting for us, up for us an understanding of salvation. And that's that salvation... We can think of it like this. It's divided between an objective and a subjective reality. An objective and a subjective reality. The, obje- the objective reality is all the things that God, that God does completely outside of you. It's completely free grace. It has, no- it has nothing to do with what you do. It's completely outside of you. And, and the way he's manifesting that is not just justification, but you see what justification gets you. Since you've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Now, you might be tempted to think that what Paul's talking about there is, um, is a subjective category, right? A category of your inner disposition, a category of resting, of serenity, of calmness, of peace. But actually, the word that he's using there is referring to an, an objective reality. It's, it, it's, 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 the word, it's, it's the word of welcome. That's another way you could translate it. It's the word of welcome or favor. It, it's like... It's like if you betrayed a friend. If you betrayed a friend, and on the night of his son's wedding, he's invited you to come sit at the table of the feast, of the wedding feast. It's the word of welcome. In other words, it's, it's objective, you see. It's, it's that you were at once, at one time, an enemy of God, and now God has made peace with you. It's the word of welcome. It's the word of favor. Now, th- this is the objective reality of salvation. Justification and peace. You were at war with God and you are no longer. And Paul's, Paul's reviewing the objective work of salvation to tell us about the subjective. In other words, he's talking about everything that God has done objectively in order to talk about who you are to become. What salvation does to you. What salvation does to change you. What the work of justification worked onto you by the Holy Spirit does to you. And the, he's, he talked about faith. But now the, the primary subjective benefit of salvation, of justification, is this. It's at the very center of our passage. It's that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's, that's, the, that's who we become. We are people who rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Is the Holy Spirit working out change in your heart? What do you hope in? And Paul's answer is, for people who have the Holy Spirit working out change in their heart, their hope is in the glory of God. That's the center subjective attribute of the Christian who's known something of the new birth. Now, what in the world does this mean? That's the, you know, that's the question. What, what does this mean? What is, it, what is he talking about when he says rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? What does this mean? So let's start with the word rejoice. Uh, the word rejoice, you know, when you when you read it in that context, it sounds it sounds like um, 
It sounds a bit like a party, like a celebration. Celebrate, party, uh, be glad, be, be super pumped, be happy in the hope of the glory of God. And that's completely true. We should do that. But, you know, well, the, one of the ways that um, the word rejoice oftentimes is uh, translated in, in the metaphors in the Psalms is the word frolic, right? So it's like a, like a deer, you know, frolicking back and forth on its legs, dancing. If you've seen a deer do that, uh, maybe you haven't seen a deer do that. Go to the zoo. Maybe they'll do it. Uh, this is the idea of celebration. You know, the, the, the Psalms even says that God frolics over his over Zion. He he jumps like a deer. He celebrates like a deer. Excitement, right? Now, that's all true, but this is not the same word. This is not the word that Paul's using here for rejoice. the the per, The word Paul's using here for rejoice is probably best translated a little bit differently. If you use it in a noun form. It's the word, it's like a branding iron in a noun. Yeah, it's, I know that sounds strange. It's, it's like when you, you know, a branding iron on an animal or something like that. In other words, it, the connotation is a firmness. It's, it's a permanence. It's a surety. It, rejoice, it, he's saying here, is be firm, stand firm. It's like standing on top of a, bul, a bulwark, a foundation stone. Uh, it, it's the opposite of standing on... Shifting sand, the, the term he's using here is a soldier's verb. It's a soldier's verb for standing up and, and having your, your armor put on you. Well, it's, the point he's saying is it's immovable. It's immovable. So what he's saying here is be confident in the immovable hope of the glory of God. That's what he's saying. Now, all right. Now, that leads us to, set, to settle the next one. What exactly is this hope? What does it mean to hope in the glory of God? What's he saying here? And I think what he's saying here is that hope in the glory of God is a hope that is both already and not yet. It's a hope that's both already and not yet. Now, everybody's got hopes. Uh, there's a particular way of using the word hope in modern discourse, in late modern discourse, and you guys know the way of using hope, the word hope. Um, I've got an alumni letter not too long ago from the University of Edinburgh because um, I don't, I've done one degree there and I'm on my second. And um, the, the letter read, what are our hopes and dreams for our graduates, right? And you immediately know what they mean by the word hope there. It's, it's, a, it's your goals, your dreams. In other words, the way we use the term hope in late modern discourse is that ho- our hopes give us our context of meaning in life. Right? It's, it's the things that you see out in front of you in the future that you want so bad to define exactly who you are. That give you, that give you the meaning, that give you the purpose of getting out of bed in the morning. Right? What are our hopes and dreams for our graduates? What are our hopes and our dreams for our, for our people in our company? What are our hopes and dreams uh, for X, Y, or Z? That's what we mean by hopes and dreams in late modern discourse, in our normal discourse. One of the um, most famous cultural expressions of the way we use that word hopes attached to dreams uh, actually comes from uh, Bruce Springsteen, of all places. Um, in 1999, Bruce Springsteen did a tour uh, called The Land of Hopes and Dreams. And uh, he unveiled a song during that tour called The Land of Hopes and Dreams. And uh, scholars, if there are, I guess, I suppose there are Springsteen scholars, because I read one, uh, in, says this, In Springsteen's take, All are welcome on the train of the land of hopes and dreams. 
not just the righteous and the holy, but saints and sinners, losers and winners, whores and gamblers. You just get on board the train. The train will not disappoint you. The train of the American Western hope and dream. And Entertainment Tonight, uh, commenting on the song and the tour, called this Springsteen's Pure Secular Gospel. And they further commented that churches would be lucky to have just a fraction of the people in their pews that got as excited about the church's gospel as they did about Springsteen's pure, as the people at the concert did about Springsteen's pure secular gospel. It's a gospel, E.T. describes it, of secular hopes and dreams where no dream will be left behind. No hope will be unrealized if you just get on this train, if you get on the train of the American Western dream. Now, look, everybody immediately knows as soon as you hear that that that's complete ludicrous. If you've lived for for a, a month, for six months, for a year in life, even a baby can know that this is complete ludicrous. Um, you see, hope, hope in popular discourse, in modern, late modern discourse, is entirely circumstantial. It's entirely circumstantial. Hope is a dream, a desire for favorable outcomes in the midst of totally uncertain circumstances. And it's, it's the way that we define the entire meaning of our lives as 21st century people. The gospel of hopes and dreams, the secular gospel of hopes and dreams says... Find your ultimate identity. Find your context of meaning. Find your value. Find your true source of joy in a life of circumstantial hope. But, look, let's say hypothetically, even, even when a person meets all those hopes and dreams, you know, a little Barack Obama hoping someday that he could become president, a little, uh, you pick your figure, and they realize all their hopes and dreams, and, and it comes... And it comes to truth in a, in, a, in a parallel universe where that might be possible. Every single train of hope and dream falls off the tracks at the point of death, at the point into oblivion. Even if you're able to avoid destruction, disease, disaster, domination in your whole life, all the terrible deeds, at the end of your life, you're still going to fall off the track straight into, straight into the pit of oblivion, the pit of death. That's all the secular gospel of hopes and dreams can offer. It's complete circumstantial hope. One of the great ways of illustrating this is from uh, the 19th century poem um, Ozymandias. I don't know if any of you guys have heard that one. Ozymandias was written by an English uh, romantic poet, uh, Percy Shelley, who was actually married to Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. And he wrote in 1818, and the poem imagines... An Egyptian memorial, a, a researcher, an Egyptologist traveling through Egypt and coming across a never-before-seen memorial, a, a stone uh, in Egypt. And on, on the pedestal of the stone is written these words, My name is Ozymandias, King of kings, Pharaoh of pharaohs. Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. And then the poem goes on, the city around the monument was gone. Nothing but level sands for miles. The memorial itself had just two legs left and a broken in half statue with faded words. You, you see? E- even the, the biggest empire-building hopes and dreams that, that were once realized in some, in some past, 
are, are nothing but level sands. In the, all flesh is like grass. All, all flesh is like grass. Paul's idea of hope is totally different from this. You can only believe in a secular gospel of hopes and dreams for so long until the disappointment of not reaching them crushes you. Paul's gospel, Paul's gospel of hope is totally different from this. He calls it a hope that will not put you to shame. It will not disappoint you, in other words. It's a transcendent hope. It's a hope that reaches beyond the bounds of temporary circumstance. It's, it's, it's not a hope in, in a future that is unsure. That's the difference. And he calls it the hope of God's glory or the glory of God. Now, what, what does he mean? What's the, what's the glory of God? There's, I think, two ways of talking about the glory of God. The Old Testament word for the glory of God, glory, the word glory, is the word kabod. And kabod is, kabod is so hard to translate uh, we don't know. We don't know how to translate it because, because well, Paul puts it this way in First Corinthians. He he talks about the weight, the eternal weight of glory, the eternal weight of from the Old Testament kabod. Kabod has this sense of weightiness, just being weighed down. And you see, what, you see what Paul's saying. It's the God's glory is the eternal weight of weightiness. You see, uh, it's it's the the only way to sh- tell, the only way to tell you about it is to show you. Every time Jesus in the Gospels would talk to somebody and they wouldn't understand who he was and they would ask him and he would use one little word in Greek, two little words in English, he would say, I am. I am. And what would happen every single time in the Gospels when he says the words, I am? People, no matter if they believed in him or not, would fall on their face. Even the guards in Gethsemane when he said, I am, they, they could do nothing else but fall, fall flat on the ground. Before they, you see what they said? They felt kabod. They felt the weight of weightiness fall upon them. The, the glory that was standing in their very presence. The weight of glory. That's the first way. It's, it's God's fame, His weightiness pronounced throughout all the earth. But that's true. That's true. That's true for what glory is. But that's not actually what Paul means here. Paul is actually pointing to something a little bit different, a little bit more precise by the phrase, the glory of God. Uh, You know, in in the Old Testament, God manifests himself in a cloud. He hid his glory. Nobody Nobody could look at him face to face, so he hid his glory in the cloud. What's the glory of God in the New Testament? Hebrews 1, verse 3, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, is the ray, the radiance of the glory of God made known in these last days. First Thessalonians, when Jesus Christ comes again, He's coming in the cloud. You see, what Paul's talking about here is not, it's not just the weight of weightiness of, glo- of a generalized glory. He's talking about a person. Hope in the glory of God is hope in Jesus Christ, the glory of God made known, the radiance, the, the glory of God on display. There's, there's, no, there's nothing more certain in this life that you're going to suffer. There's nothing more certain. There's, there's nothing more certain in this life that your circumstances will not always be the fulfillment of your hopes and dreams. And, there's, and what Paul's telling you, that there's nothing more certain in life 
than that Jesus Christ is coming again. That, that's the hope of the glory of God. The hope that Jesus is going to make good on His promises. There's only one sure hope, one sure place, one disposition of your heart, one desire that will not fail you, that won't, that won't dump you, that won't fire you, that won't divorce you, that won't abandon you, that won't leave you as an orphan, that won't tell you you're mediocre, that, that won't tell you that being single is being worthless. That won't, that won't tell you that being unemployed is, is, a, is a road to nothing but despair. There's, there's nothing more certain than that you're going to suffer, and there's nothing more certain, Paul is saying, than that Jesus Christ is coming to bring death to death. It's a ho- it, it is a circumstance. It's one circumstance, one event, one happening. And, and if, you're, if, you're, if your hope is in anything else, then all you have is a I hope so, not I hope in. And that's a big difference. All right, second and finally, five minutes, and we'll be done. This is short, five minutes. The freedom of hope. Hope is so freeing. Hope in the glory of God, hope in Jesus Christ is so freeing from the slavery of circumstantial happiness. If you look with me at the text, you'll see the logic. In verse 2, at the end, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, you see, the, you see that chain of logic are bookended by hope. You have hope, and then you suffer, and then it forms into endurance, and then out of suffering, you get more hope. It's, from, it's a logic that goes from hope to hope. You see, when you have hope in, the, when you have hope in something so transcendent over, over the waves, the, the coming and going of the misera- miserableness of, of daily circumstance, of the, of the potential despair of daily circumstance, then what happens is that when you step into the fire, you, you can be refined like gold. You, you actually want God more when you step into suffering. It, it produces more hope versus the circumstances where the fire comes and it, and it lights you and, you and it just burns you up into despair. That, that's the first thing. The second thing to say here is this, and this may, even, this may even be more significant than the fact that hope in the glory of God can give you a buoyancy in, in suffering, but it's more significant than that for us, for many of us especially who grew up in the church, and that's this. It frees you from the slavery of being happy. It, it frees you from the slavery of being happy. Now, what do, what do we mean by that? Um, our, our normal mode of operation, even as Christians, is to allow our circumstantial happiness to dictate, to dictate our inner disposition. We forget the gospel. We forget the hope and the glory of God. And in time, you actually start to let circumstantial happiness once again become, become, become that thing that dictates your inner disposition, the possibility of your joy. And what this is saying is that you've got to leave circumstantial happiness behind in order to get non-circumstantial joy. The disposition that never leaves no matter what the circumstance is. The disposition that says that, jar, that joy and sorrow exist simultaneously. 
that Christians can grieve with those who grieve. They can be happy with those who are happy. But the thing that underlies that, in, that all the time is the disposition of utter joy. And the only way to get it is utter hope. Hope in the glory of God. So it frees you from the slavery of being happy. Now, we, in our tradition, don't, don't hear me wrong, in our tradition, especially more than, than many others, our Christian tradition uh, that this denomination comes from, we, we love the beauties of this earth. We love good wine in our tradition. We, we love good food. We, we, love, we love good romance. We, we, we love the beauties of the earth. But what, what's being warned against here is falling into a position where circumstantial happiness, where you make the beauties of the earth into the beauty instead of seeing the beauties of the earth in light of the beauty, the true beauty, Jesus Christ himself. All right, last thing I'll say and we'll be done. Lastly, hoping in the glory of God gives you a freedom to hope in your own glory. Now, you, you've been listening to this. Maybe you haven't. Now's, now's a good time to start. Uh, God, God hopes in His glory. And that hope is not a guessing game. It's completely sure. Jesus Christ will have His glory. Jesus is the glory, and He will have His glory. God will have His glory in the coming ages. The kingdom will be His. He will take, all, he will take authority. He already has. But what you may be asking in that is you're saying, hope in the glory of God, hope in, hope in the glory of Jesus Christ manifest, but how is that actually hoping in my glory? How, I, what about me? What about me? How, how is that actually hoping in, in my future glory? In any hope for me to have glory? You're talking about Jesus having glory, God having His glory. What about me? John fourteen eighteen. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Look, here's the beauty of justification. Here's the beauty of what Paul's been talking about up to this point in Romans. God treats you in justification the same exact way that he treats his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died, you died. When Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, you were resurrected. When Jesus Christ comes again in glory, His very glory is your very glory. That, that's, the point of, that's the point Paul's trying to make about salvation. It's, it, we call it the doctrine of union with Christ. In the, it's, G, Jesus is for you. He is yours and you are His. And what the Father has given Him, the Father is going to give to you. See, His glory... Your glory is completely wrapped up in His glory. And so the grand irony of all of history is this. If you want to be happy, if you want to have happiness, if if you want to have true joy, you have to look entirely outside of yourself. You you have to look to the hope of the glory of God, the glory of Jesus Christ. And here's the irony, is that when you leave yourself, when you you become self-forgetful in that way, you actually have invested in the eternity of your own glory. It's the only way to get it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, we're closing with C.S. Lewis quote, as I often do. Uh, C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, an essay based off Paul's phrase, The Weight of Glory, in Corinthians, he asks this same question I've been asking, what are you hoping in? In a different way, 
He, he wants to know, is your hope actually big enough? Are your, are your current circumstantial hopes just too small? And, th- and this is how he puts it. One of the, you know, it's, this quote is cliche, but sometimes things are cliche because they're good. Uh, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires, our hopes, not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy and hope is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. What are you hoping in? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask that now your spirit would come and give us the hope that you promise is the only hope that can truly change us. The hope of Jesus Christ, the fact of Jesus Christ come for us and coming again for us. And so we ask now simply, Lord, that you would work that into our hearts, whether we've been Christians for 50 years or we're exploring the claims of Christianity today. Would you make it known to us? Would Would we know it? We ask that what's in our head would drop into our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.